The author of The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, Thomas Kuhn, said, Though the world does not change with a change of paradigm, the scientist afterward works in a different world, nevertheless. Today, we're looking at how those words apply to works of literature, seeing what famous, infamous, or just seminal works changed the game. Throughout history, books have changed everything. From The Lord of the Rings reinventing the fantasy genre to Isaac Asimov completely rewriting how we interpret science fiction, there have always been those authors who have changed the genre in and of itself. This is The Book Report. I like it. Oh, it's going to be that kind of podcast now. The Book Report. The Book Report. Did you see my, um, my screen name today? Your screen name is 20 Cents. Yeah, do you understand why I did that? I don't. Because it's a paradigms. And we're talking about I paradigms. You. I You're hate so you welcome. so much, but I love, I love that. <laughs> You're so welcome. I love, right, I love the play, but I hate that you did it. <laughs> <laughs> is this your way of telling me your wife is pregnant? Because that was a horrible dad joke. <laughs> it's not. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. It's not. Um, let's see. I think that was pretty good for an intro. <laughs> <laughs> something, wasn't it? Wasn't it something? Uh, well, I don't have it recording when I don't know you're going to there, be there. Kind of there. <laughs> you don't know I'm going to there. I don't know you're going to there. <laughs> and what's Dead Space in a uh, podcast? It's called Art, you know? It's like an old silent film. Fair. I think. And silent podcasts would not have taken off. Oof. No. <laughs> I don't know. That one four minute and 23 second concert or whatever is, is pretty popular. No, that's stupid. I mean, agreed. It's popular, though. There's lots of stupid things that are popular. It's just because someone was like, I'm going to be all hot. Okay, honestly, here's what I think happened. All right. The guy sold the idea great. He was like, I want you to listen to the music around us. I think what actually happened is he got like fucked up the night before, super drunk, and accidentally like woke up realizing he had not written any music for this super fancy concert. He got there and he was like, shit, 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 light bulb. Here's what yeah. we're going to do, everyone. It's either that or he sat down and wrote something that he absolutely loved, played it for one person, and they were like, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so he to come up with something last minute. <laughs> he like sits down to play it for his kid and his kid's like, dad, you should quit. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. His wife leaves him just listening to him play the piano. Oh, oh, so, no. honey, what did you think? Well, I'm cheating on you. What? Yeah, yeah as of five minutes from now. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go find the first person I see and jump them. Right. Yeah. Just to get so, that yeah. sound out of my head. Silent podcasting. It's the wave of the future. <laughs> Oh, geez. Well, so. Oh, actually, okay, sorry. To not move forward and literally stay right where we are. Um, Headspace, the app, right? The meditation mm-hmm. app. Since I'm a, a teacher, Headspace back at the beginning of the pandemic was like, we bet you're stressed. Here's a year free. So I was like, sure, whatever. That's like 
great. Oh, wow. So, so anyways, I downloaded it and half of their meditation apps is just a timer of complete silence. So clearly you can't, you can make money selling silence. Yeah, that's fair. I have used a few of the like YouTube, uh, hypnosis meditation guided things to help me fall asleep. Cause I have wicked insomnia sometimes. And there's a couple of them that work really, really well that like immediately managed to put me asleep. I don't know what they say to me once I'm asleep. They could be, I don't know, making me go commit insurrection or something when I don't know it. But they help me fall asleep, so that's all I care about. Do you remember when we were in um, college and the big thing they just came out were binaural, binaural yes, beats? binaural beats, yes. And then everyone on the internet was like worried because the big news story was how kids are getting high listening to sound. Yeah. Because they thought it induced hallucinations. Which, man, that'd be fun if it worked that way. Dude, I tried <laughs> so many of those trying to make it work. Do you remember nothing. that thing? Literally okay. nothing. We are nowhere near on topic. But do you remember that thing that we found that if you tape like half of a ping pong ball and play white noise and shine a red light in your eyes, it'll simulate the effects of like doing LSD? And we tried that too, and it didn't do anything. <laughs> Yes, I remember because we had a fucking ping pong ball strapped to our head like a bunch of idiots. <laughs> Nothing. The oh, biggest man. waste of an afternoon of my life. God. I was I was so looking forward to tripping on ping pong ball lights or something. I don't, I don't know. know what we even knew what was supposed to happen, but the fact that we just believed the random crap we read on the internet just says something about us. We would have been better off just going and buying actual drugs at that point. Yeah, right? Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Sorry, I'm crying over here. I had forgotten about that entirely until you brought up my I little actually piece. had too. Oh, oh man. Good times. good times. Good times. Ping pong balls and laser pointers. <laughs> That's all you need for a good time, kids. The new alcohol. Oh, man. How cold is it uh, over in the North Carolina? Well, you got my state wrong again, but Damn it. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing without fail. I've been there. Yeah, you have. You flew into our airport. Oh, um, I don't know. You know, you guys are pushing your shitty weather off on us, which sucks because in Oklahoma, you've got uh, almost zero humidity. So it's cold, but it's like manageable-ish. Here in South Carolina, it's humid, so the cold somehow manages to get inside of you. Oh, yeah. And I did not consent. So well, Right now, it's pushing 20 degrees almost in Oklahoma, but our forecast for the next the three days – Actually, no, it's just 15 right now. Uh, I was wrong. Um, but over the next three days, the high is um, 19. It's the highest point. And on Solid. Sunday, there's an 80% chance of snow with a high of 8 and so Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, it's supposed to snow, and it won't get above, like, 8 degrees. Nice. Three days, and we might get up to 15 inches of snow. So Dude, I'm you're packing. Gonna, you're going to feel so good when that leaves. It's right. Just, I remember when I used to live in Kansas City, it was, like, negative 3 or 4 for almost a week straight um, one year. And then it got up to 15 degrees, and I was running around outside in shorts because I was like, oh, my God. It's so warm outside. <laughs> yeah. I've packed up everything in my fridge and freezer because I'm not letting it, like, go bad again. Like, the last mm, ice storm. Smart. I'm moving it all up to my boyfriend's house in Edmond because it's a brand new development and doesn't lose power very often. Knock on wood. That's what <laughs> happens when you have wealth. Apparently. Yeah. New things always stay lit. 
Okay, we have a couple of like news things to talk about, or one news thing and then other stuff I want to talk about before we get into the meat of the podcast. Sounds great. But um, so we've both seen the Redwall announcement that Netflix is adapting the Redwall books into both a movie and a TV series animated. And you were angry about it, or at least concerned. I just am worried they're going to ruin something I valued a lot as a child, mostly. Also, did you ever see the... Um, they they already made a Red Wall Yeah, there was movie. a Red Wall animation. It was cartoonish back yeah. in probably the 80s, but I don't know. I watched it as a kid. I remember watching it once and being okay with it, but I don't think I had read that particular Red Wall book, so I was very confused. It's the main one. Okay, yeah, but I didn't start with Red Wall. Well, I, I started either, with like honestly. the Legend of uh, Legend of Luke, and then um, sure. Mortimer, and like I read all of the books eventually, but I did not read them anywhere close to in the right order. No, totally fine. I I don't think anyone did because back back in the dark ages before the internet, you just read whatever was on hand at your local library, yeah, and exactly. they only had like the random stuff that had been donated to them. So mm-hmm. yeah, I I didn't read the actual Redwall book for years. But no, um, it was made a lot more recently than I thought it was. Oh? 2000. Really? Yeah, that's surprising. Jeez, that is surprising. Well, mm-hmm. I apparently they're the, the I haven't seen the movie that the creators that they're giving it to made, but it's beloved apparently. So people are hopeful with it at least. And I think as long as they somehow capture the spirit of it, as long as they don't just do cutesy animals fighting, as long as it's like, equally violent and whimsical, I'll be excited for it. I feel like if you're going to adapt Redwall, the biggest mistake you could make is not make it violent because those were deceptively very violent books, even though they were just animals fighting each other. Yeah, they were, they were nuts. Like um, Brian Jakes, he was very descriptive in his war scenes. Mm -hmm. So like, this is not, this shouldn't be a children's show. This should be a, I mean, you can make it a young adult or even like just a show geared for teenagers or not teenagers, but like, I don't know. You just can't make it a kid kitty show. <laughs> See, I don't want them to make it a show geared towards teenagers because then someone somewhere is going to like turn it into a weird fan ficky thing. Yeah, I don't, that's why I don't need that to happen. With Red Wall. That. There's yeah. no sexual energy in Redwall at all, but there someone is make it. violence. <laughs> Someone's going to create it and it's going to be yeah, uncomfortable because we're literally talking about mice. I know. Mice and rabbits and badgers. Yeah, oh my! Not... Um. Shut up! <laughs> Shut your stupid thing. Uh, okay. Well, the other one I saw in the same news story, maybe it was like a click away from that same news story, was that um, they are the CW. Speaking of teenagers, is rebooting or not rebooting, but doing a live action Powerpuff Girls, and they're all adults, and they are miffed that they had been crime fighters or convinced to be crime fighters and they were kids and lost their childhood and they're now 20 somethings and angry about it and that pitch sounds so insanely stupid and yet i cannot wait for that show oh god that's pretty that's uh (laughs) see i've been so disappointed with all of the live action reboots of beloved cartoons that i can't take another one i just can't do it see i never watched powerpuff girls i knew of it but i I never never cared about it I'm, so, nah, so to it, me, that's that, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> like, to me, I want to watch that show. Totally fair. I just, I, so, um, 
right now I have Disney Plus because WandaVision, so duh. But I right. was watching Mulan last night, or two nights ago, the new live action. It was oh, awful. Yeah. It was like the oh, worst yeah. movie I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. That's the general consensus. And I was just like, who the hell greenlit this? They ruined it. It's not even good. It was so ridiculous. And I felt the same way back in the day when they did the live action Beauty and the Beast with Emma Watson. Mm. It was, you know, and there's the live just... action Cinderella with that no-name girl who's now famous. Know. Yeah, there's they just, kept there's so many... Pointless. There's so many um, good ways to do a live action reboot, but generally speaking, the reason why those animated films work is because you can just like imbue them with all this childhood whimsy and it just mm-hmm. works, works better. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of live action Cinderella, did you ever see the multi-ethnic one from the early 2Ks with like um, Jason Alexander? No. From Seinfeld? Oh my God, you need to watch it. It's so good. That is interesting. Uh, no, the um, Cinderella is black. Um, Prince Charming is Asian. Okay. Whoopi Goldberg is Prince what? Charming's mom. What? Okay. And Jason Alexander. Jason Alexander is married to Whoopi Goldberg. It's the best <laughs> thing. That's how you should have sold the movie. Have I know. Jason Alexander is married to Whoopi Goldberg. And uh, you, you could have stopped there. I'm I know. I watch that now. It's so good. I watched it like 20 times when I was a kid. It's so good. Love that. Love that now. And right. no one has ever seen it. Yeah, I have to find that. And if it's a Disney movie, maybe I can talk about it on my friend's Disney podcast because that's, yeah. Yeah, Ooh. if your friend hasn't seen that, that needs to be an entire episode in and of itself because it's the most racially diverse thing ever. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's nuts. It's so good. All right. This next bit I'm probably going to cut out, but I just wanted to vent uh, to you a little bit about the Wheel of Time series. Oh, sorry. Um, Whitney Houston played the fairy godmother. Continue. What? <laughs> <laughs> I have to find this movie right now. Oh, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Googling. Um, oh, where is this film at? It's the 1997 version. Okay. Cinderella 1997. Oh my gosh. It is on, on Disney+. Plus. You're welcome. You're so okay. welcome. This is being watched tonight. <laughs> this is. I'm m- m- very excited. <laughs> As you should be. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Okay. I'm, okay. I gotta stop looking at the Wikipedia page for this movie. Um. What was I saying? Wheel of Time. I have no idea. Yeah. I'm in book three of the Wheel of Time. Nearly done with it, and I have. A few notes that I just want to point out and see if, you know, other people have noticed. Um, oh, my God. The funniest and one of the best things that I've seen in a book series in a long time is the teenage male mindset that every other teenage male friend of theirs is better with women than they are. They keep <laughs> coming to that point, And it's so funny. Like every time one of the three main guys gets separated and is in a situation with a girl he's interested in, his first thought is, "I wish um, one of my wish friends Rand was here. Was here. Yeah, I, I wish so and so was here because they'd have a better." And ev- all three of them do it about each other, and that mm-hmm. cracks me up every time. Um, oh, it's hilarious! And my favorite so one well is um, is Perrin because he's always down on himself about everything, and he's mm-hmm. like this big burly linebacker dude. Yeah. This he's massive, like, oh, and he's me. like, people think I'm slow because they think things through. And now that Matt has come out of his um, 
sort of possession by the dagger and you realize how incredibly smart Matt is and this like conniving little like genius thief boy like I'm loving that they all have very distinct characters that I didn't feel like they had in the first book yeah Um, their characterization really starts to shine through once they get separated out it's good when they're all together it's hard to do that I guess plus you know they're growing into themselves that's kind of the point of it but the other thing is the the Avalon seat or the the head witch lady. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to pronounce. Uh, she is the most annoying person in the world, and it's because of the writing. Like I feel like her characterization is fine, except for the fact that at some point in the last book they made reference to the fact that she's from a fishing village, and when she gets worked up, she you know falls back into making fish analogies. And yeah. there hasn't been a single thing she said in this entire book. That hasn't been somehow related back to fishing. And I'm like, no one acts like that. <laughs> no one talks that way. Stop oh, it. Man. I don't remember it's, that at all. So she must drop that by the time she gets a couple books in. Uh, th- this is the third book. And they didn't have it in the first two books. They just mentioned it once in the last book. And now it's every line she says is like it's a normal analogy. Are or, you talking about more rain? Or, no, oh, rain, no, no, no. You're uh, talking about um, – the Avalon oh, seat. Yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Just like instead of saying any normal idiom, it's a normal idiom but made fishy somehow. And it's just so stupid and annoying. Right. Okay. Now I know. I thought you were talking about more rain. And I was like, I don't ever remember her saying anything about a fish. No, Maybe she ate rain. a fish one time. <laughs> I don't know. And then my other biggest problem with it is just my problem with series in general. I understand it's not done as much anymore, but I understand series, uh, you know, back in the day and by back in the day, I mean like 10 years ago, every book that came out in a series, they'd have like three chapters that would recap the book before and re-explain everything mm-hmm. for if you jumped into the series there. And I'm like, this is a massively complicated <laughs> book series. No one jumped into it in the third book. Stop explaining Correct. things to me. I know this whole time. <laughs> And that is so annoying. And it's like, it's not even a refresher. It's just, you're just giving the exact same explanation again. Stop. No. You're not a scholastic know. book written for children. I know this. <laughs> Move on. I don't remember how fast he wrote them. I'm curious if it was just because he took long enough to write them that he thought people had forgotten what was going on. Right. But they're, they're just, they're really immersive stories. So I don't know how you would forget. Yeah. And it's, they're and not it's, like, they're honestly not that complicated for the most part. So you can keep, you can keep your ducks yeah. in a row. But they're reintroducing the same characters and how magic works and the uh, mm-hmm. the ring things that they have to work rock through to get there, become accepted, which is – and it's just yeah. like, oh my god, stop. We had like literally half a book talking about the accepted process last, last book. Why are you doing it all again? <laughs> Wasn't that long ago. But yeah, no, those I were agree. random I don't updates. That's super well. I always really liked the um, – he didn't do it in every book, but he did it in a lot of them. He would start the book with the like wind moving through things, and I always thought that yeah. was a cool artistic thing to do. It's a very poetic um, way to introduce things. And mm-hmm. uh, the fact that he does it the same way and talks about the Wheel of Time, it really pulls it together. Um, I like it. I like that format used better in the um, – uh, name of the wind series because he uses it to bookend it and each one changes slightly 
which obviously means something, but none of us really understand what it means yet. So I like it when it's more of a puzzle. Um, I really like puzzles that I have to work out in books, which is another reason I think this Redwall series might be in danger, because how do you do a yeah. convincing puzzle, like word puzzle, in a TV show? So That's true. I had forgotten that was a pretty big thing in all of his books. Word puzzles and feasts. If it, If the show doesn't make me hungry... And make me sit down and try to work out a word puzzle, then it has failed. (laughs) Completely failed. Completely failed. I remember one summer, I spent the entire summer reading just Ryan Jake's books, and I would go to the grocery store and buy like every different type of Kool Aid I could find because I was like, (laughs) oh, I'm drinking whatever they were drinking on their their feasts. And I was like, oh, that's what this probably tastes like, like their cordials and stuff. Mm -hmm. See, mine was, I always had to get actual like, I always had to get breads and cheeses because the way they described baking breads and those massive cheeses always made me starving. So I always had to have bread and cheese whenever I was reading one of his books. Dude, fair. You were a millennial girl before it was cool. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Might as well. <laughs> so ostensibly so, today we talked about so anyways. last week. Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> We talked about how the um, the three-body problem was a new paradigm shift in how to tell science fiction stories. And I asked you – or, yeah, we asked each other to come up with other things that we have found to be paradigm shifts or perennial books that have changed the genre they're in or established a genre. I typed up just a list of them with absolutely no notes on them. <laughs> Do you have any that you want to talk about, or should we just start going through this random long list I have? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can do that. I thought we could go through different genres and talk about what we think is the the paradigm shifting book in maybe that genre. But, oh, that works too. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's do that. Let's you pick a genre and I'll name it. Name what I think is. And then if we haven't mentioned all these books, I will we'll, we'll go over them at the end. Okay. So I guess a couple of ground rules for our audience. Do you want books that um, like changed an already existing genre? Do you want books that invented a genre? What are you looking for here? Yes. I'd like cool. both because I feel like most of the time when a, when a genre is changed, it creates like a subgenre or it just changes it completely. Like uh, obviously the obvious example that comes to mind is Tolkien fiction. When Lord of the Rings right. came out, there's now an entire classification of fiction that is Tolkien fiction. Um, so he didn't necessarily invent the genre. It had been around for a while. Uh, Tolkien or fantasy had been around for a while, but he made it his own and everybody wrote it that way from then on. Um, so that's the kind of thing we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, in that case, let's just uh, begin with fantasy. So do you have any fantasy books you think are genre shifting well besides lord of the rings um that's that's everyone's first answer you can't talk about paradigm shifting books without bringing lord of the rings in the mix just because like you said he basically he didn't try to invent world of warcraft dungeons and dragons and all of those things but he did right right i think um uh i think there's probably a billion different um uh uh versions of this i'm trying to think of the word the book i'm thinking of but urban fantasy is a genre that isn't hasn't been around for very long um i think 
if I think of it right now, I automatically go back to Dresden Files. That's my urban fantasy. Um, that was my introduction to it. But I'm sure there's a book um, that originated the idea, and it might even be Frankenstein. I know a lot of people talk about how that's the first um, first horror novel, mm. uh, but I feel like that's at least the way we think about things today, a lot more of an urban fantasy than it is a horror uh, book. It's the concept of these fantastical things are happening in a major city where we live. Um, We we can interact with magic and it has fantasy elements and fantasy uh, morals that it tries to impart. Oh, you mean like bright? Uh, The movie bright. (laughs) That really shitty movie with, um, What's his name? Will Smith. Will Smith. Yeah. It wasn't mm-hmm. terrible, but it was like, once you thought about it for half a second, it was like, wait a second, what? <laughs> for a minute. So I guess if you're talking about urban fantasy, I think that Jim Butcher just kind of is the genre. Honestly. Um, there are others. Like I know, I think you've talked about Libriomancer before, but mm-hmm. uh, other than that, there's just not really anything that's quite as um, prolific or not uh, monolithic in terms of urban fantasy, because even as I'm sitting here trying to think of books that I've read that are urban fantasy, there's really just not that many because generally speaking, when you have a crossover between our world and the fantastical world, it's people journeying to the fantastical world and not the other way around. Right. So I looked up what is considered the first urban fantasy novel and no one can really agree. Okay. (laughs) Um, uh, there's, um, arguments that it's China Mevel and the Perdido street station, which is what I'm reading right now. And I didn't realize that was one. There's arguments okay. that it's the 1998 book night watch by Sergei Lykonekia. I can't even pronounce his name. Close enough. Yeah. Um, but then there's also a French poem, um, called the unreal city that is said to have established concepts of the genre that goes all the way back to 1857. So, okay. Urban fantasy, as we understand it, is probably most defined by um, somebody like uh, um, Neil Gaiman or, um, yeah, the Dresden Files. But there isn't a interesting find. There isn't a firm shift on what people agree is the book that made that. Well, that's. I mean, that's totally fine. I would say though that you've got a long history of we'll call it urban fantasy in the form of fairy tales, because almost all of those are fantastical creatures interacting with real people in the real world. And even though a lot of times it's more like village Hamlet type things, I would still consider that to be an urban fantasy precursor, but you don't really get the like um, coalescence of all of those fan fantastical tales into one thing until you get to the Jim butchers and Neil Gaiman's of the world. Right, right, 100%. At least not in a way that's like communicated widely enough that it starts to change how people write. So, mm-hmm. um, I will say I, my, my other fantasy one, and I've said this multiple times so we don't have to uh, harp on it, but I would say The Name of the Wind uh, series is a new fantasy genre or starts a new fantasy genre that almost feels more like an ARG sometimes than even a book series because there's so much stuff that is done or people are reading into it more like it's a puzzle book at times than it is even a novel. And that's a different level of involvement that most fantasy books up until his didn't have people. There's always like fan fiction and like, you know, excitement about them and 
fantasy and sci-fi have weird fandoms, but never to the level of I must puzzle this out. The clues are all in there until um, I've never seen that until I've seen Name of the Wind and Wise Man's Fear. Okay, fair enough. I think if we're talking about fantasy, um, a lot of fantasy tends to be very happy, very upbeat, or it just has a generally positive bent. So bad things might happen to the characters, but overall, you know that it's going to be fairly good for everyone in the end. And so there are a couple of a couple of authors that I would say are the ones who really started to change those things in fantasy. Um, if you're talking about like pop audiences in terms of like everyone has read it, everyone has heard about it, and it started to change what the audience expects from their fantasy. I would say George R.R. Martin gets the crown for that. That's because true. Because he took fantasy and he was like, all right, we're going to introduce this protagonist that everyone loves. He's endearing. He would make a solid lead for a multi-book series and we're going to chop his head off at the end of the first book. Yeah. It cool. feels, and his whole book until that point felt like it was a token fantasy. Yeah. yeah. And then it, it, yeah, it became a different thing. That's very yeah. true. I didn't think about that at all. Yeah. So I would say that that, at least in terms of pop audience was, was very much the, like, um, the gen- generate the generative factor of um, almost a gritty fantasy. And there are some earlier versions of that, but they didn't reach as wide of an audience. Like if you want something like dark fantasy, where you start to get things like the occult and evil and people like doing some pretty jacked up shit, um, like the black company by um, Glenn mm-hmm. cook was published in the eighties. Um, and that one is like, it's a really good book and I should probably recommend it sometime, but that's like dark fantasy. Uh, I know of that book and I think it's one I've started a couple times, but never been able to get into. It's tough. Um, just because it is written a little bit, um, more for, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of tough to read, but, um, so I would say George Martin is kind of the one who introduces that type of thing into a more modern audience. And even now when you're looking at, what types of books are coming out in fantasy. A lot of them are a little more like uh, morally dubious protagonists. Right. They're and anti-heroes. I, yeah. Anti-heroes is a really common one. I don't know if you've ever read the um, it's by Joe Abercrombie and he wrote a trilogy. Uh, I think it's called the blade itself. I think that's the name of the trilogy. I'm going to double check that. Um Sorry, the first Law trilogy. The first book is called The Blade Itself. But Joe Abercrombie also writes in like that dark, gritty fantasy where you've got these characters that are morally ambiguous. Um, and so I think there are a couple of artists who did that. Um, I just don't okay. know if we're taking right. like far-reaching into account when we're talking about it or not. <laughs> no, that's fair. But no, I think, yeah. Anyways. Okay. So what's your genre? Um, how about... Uh... Let's just do young adult fiction. What was the, what, what is a game changer or a, creating or changing the genre of young adult fiction? Okay. Hunger Games. Yeah. Okay. That was the, that Doesn't was the main one second. I had. Yeah. Um, every book for the next like five or six years that came out was some type of dystopian future. You had mm-hmm. the Maze Runner, you had the, um, what was that stupid one that I hate? Divergent. Rock. Thank you. Divergent. Yes. Um, you just had all these almost copycat versions of yes, that. Yes, they all had to become this dystopian uh, story that centered around a love triangle, like every mm-hmm. single one. And it was so powerful, it retroactively changed The Giver. And so when they yes. made The Giver into the movie, they made it a Hunger Games copy. 
somehow, even though it had come out, what, 50 years before? Like, right. insanity. I don't know if it's that long, but it was a long time. It was a long time yeah. before that. So um, Hunger Games definitely changed the game. <laughs> yes. I mean, there's there's a lot of books in the young adult genre that um that did a good job of... Jeez, oh, this one's hard because young adult is such a wide uh, net to cast because you've got right. fantasy, you've got sci-fi, you've got dystopian. Um, and so it's, it's hard could... to pick one. But I no, I want to stick with the one we picked. I'm just trying to think of... Because like no, this saying, also includes books like The Book Thief, right? Right, right. But I'm saying we can now say The Book Thief, by the way. I just bought it again because I realized I didn't own it and saw it at a bookstore the other day. Mm-hmm. Oh, amazing book. I don't know how I've forgotten to reread that. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> the, the fact that you now say young adult and the first thing that you think of is Hunger Games, despite the fact that books like uh, The Giver or – um the book thief or i don't know like literally thousands of books are technically in that genre but that's the first mm-hmm. thing everyone thinks of and no one like across the board means that that book redefined the genre and is a paradigm shift yeah the only other one i may throw out um and i'm obviously skewing more modern here but i might almost throw out like uh something by john green the guy mm-hmm. who wrote like uh, Paper Towns and The Fault in Our Stars, just okay, because yeah, he's, yeah. he kind of introduced like the um, young adult tragedy, almost like tragic right. romance type thing, but for I a mean, young adult audience, which has yeah. been around for a very long time, but he's kind of reintroduced. Because what's it called? The Fault in Our Stars is just a walk to remember where they both have cancer, but a walk to remember mm-hmm. wasn't geared towards young adults. It was geared toward adults. It was right. just about teenagers. So it's a very interesting remixing of things that gets us to now but you know before the hunger games the young adult novel was harry potter like that was mm-hmm. the that That's was true the, but it was also it's that was now we think of that as more of a children's book um so it's a very interesting true. shift that the hunger games caused no, that's true. That's a really good point. And it's interesting how it shifts so quickly nowadays because Harry Potter was like generation defining. Yes. And I would say it still is to an extent because if you are a person who reads, you're going to read Harry Potter. But right. the Hunger Games just shifted all of our media to the point where even a lot of our adult media is now dystopian in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a it was a tentpole or is a tentpole. Yeah. Absolutely. Not bad for okay. someone who started out writing for Nickelodeon. Right. Yeah. Okay. And this one, like, this is where I get into, I started not even classifying these things because they are, the rest of my books on my list are their own classification, basically. Cool. So I'm going to try to ask it without giving away the book I want to, was thinking about. Um, what, uh, I don't know the word for it, but it's basically aspirational modern fiction or, or literature. Like it's okay. a book that isn't just fiction or the genre. What's that genre name I'm looking for? It's not fiction, just fiction. It's literary, but it's, it's aspirational and it's our books today. I don't know. It's the highbrow. It's the highbrow. Right? Yeah, I guess. No, it's usually just called literary fiction. Like you're okay. talking like to kill a mockingbird type stuff. Yeah. yeah. But that's stupid. Like I hate that that's the name for those books because everything is literary and they're all fiction. Yeah, sorry, that um, weird pet peeve of mine. Um, but yeah, what would you say is a, a a for the highbrow books for the literary fiction? What were the game changers? 
Oh shit. So literary is to me at least a little more indicative of um, books that have stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so a lot of them are books that you've read in high school or middle school, well, not middle school. You don't read books in middle school, but high school. So you've read, you know, um, well, you know, books like the outsiders or books like, um, the, uh, oh shit. What's the, uh, catcher in the rye, great Gatsby, mm-hmm. things like that are all literary. Um, but they're all so. Like there, geez, I don't even know what would be a temple for that because it's such a disparate. Right. That's my problem with it. But I went further back when I was doing some actual research on what people consider the origins of genres. Um, And I went further back and I found that most people consider the, um, the uh, average person uh, novel, the concept of somebody who hopes for a better life. That whole thing started with either Madame Bovary or Anna Karenina. Mm-hmm. and i haven't read madame bovary i have no idea what that is or what okay. it's about but i've heard it a few times but anna karenina i've read and that is a it's a book that seems so commonplace now but it was the first time a story was told that wasn't you know a retelling of a historical myth or something and it mm-hmm. wasn't a uh or a you know history of a, a embellished history of a king or a queen or somebody mm-hmm. famous or important it was just a person telling a person's story dude and that book is um it's like a uh, a master class in book ending your book with like amazing beginning and ending because that book starts out by saying there are no happy families mm-hmm. and then it ends you know like oof. yeah Tommy, don't give away any of the endings if you haven't I didn't, heard of them. I didn't. that's just <laughs> if you haven't read anna karenina yet take the time leo tolstoy is He's the OG. He's the GOAT. Yeah. He's the GOAT. Literally. Because him, he, I mean, other than that, we didn't, we wouldn't have books about just average ordinary people. Like the, mm-hmm. the concept didn't exist until Anna Karenina and Matt Bovary, apparently. So that's interesting that those, I mean, they're seminal works that people still know about, but they literally gave us the ability or the freedom to write about, you know, each other and normal people. And that's funny. Yeah. And I almost want to have an entire episode on Russian literature because it's not really a thing anymore. But during its heyday, they turned out classics like it was going out of style. Let me finish the Brothers Karamazov, which we'll all finish sometime in the next five years. (laughs) This book is so huge. (laughs) But I started at and I'm trying to make a crack at it. It's just massive. But then we can definitely do a Russian lit episode. (laughs) That would be fun. Um. No, for literary, Anna Karenina is a good one. Um, you know what? I would probably say maybe um, maybe Gone with the Wind. Yeah. You know, that one, um, it not only affected literature in terms of just uh, like exploring the intricacies of people's lives during a monumental event, but taking like a monumental event like Civil War and condensing it down to how it affected a single person. Instead yeah, of telling smaller stories movie. inside of it, and that's not something we do very often, or that's not something mm-hmm. they did very often until then. And now that's the only way we tell war stories or anything. Yeah. Like, did you watch The Dig on Netflix? I it's on my list. It's the next okay. thing we're gonna watch. It's yeah. boring. I'm okay. sorry. It's very beautiful. It's an interesting story, but it's like the slow British version of boring that I 
Sounds about right. Yep. It sometimes works, sometimes doesn't, and I did not think it worked for the dig. But it was all right before uh, England declared war on Germany in World War II. It was that moment in time and this family and this archaeological dig that happened before it, which is really interesting, but I just – I thought it was going to be something different, and so I didn't Mm -hmm. care the whole time. That's fair. But yeah, that's how we tell those stories now. We tell war stories by focusing on one person. Yeah. Well, and my second point to that, so obviously that's a huge part of why I would say that Gone with the Wind makes that list. But then also Gone with the Wind bled over because it also heavily impacted film, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, yeah. It was it was kind of like the first, not epic, but it, it was one of those like three and a half hour slogs that has an intermission <laughs> back mm-hmm. in the day when they did that. And it just... It's kind one of, of like the biggest the, casts for any movie ever up until that point. Yeah, and it's one of the the first like giant, huge budget major motion pictures where you use a book as a source material. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And they they did that a lot. Like Wizard of Oz is obviously like it's its own thing, and it it should also appear on this list. But I would say that Gone with the Wind simply for the fact that it just became this cultural icon, like one of the most famous lines in Hollywood cinematic history is frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Yeah. Like, that's gone with the wind. So I would say that that alone. Gives Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Your term, turn, term. turn, your term is up. All, <laughs> all right. Well, I'll, I'll pitch you a softball one. I know you love sci-fi. What do you want? Okay. What's your template? Sci-fi. I have one, two, three, four, five books on this list that would be considered sci-fi but all of them i think are in different genres completely um i would say the beginnings of sci-fi in general uh you'd have to go all the way back to jules verne or gulliver's travels even uh to the concept of science fiction um those that but i mean you can go further than that. The first science fiction story traveling to the moon is a, what isn't it a Greek story or an Egyptian story? Mm-hmm. Like it's a really old tale. Anyways, that defines the genre, but I think sci-fi and fantasy sci-fi more though is such an interesting split up of a genre because you have, um, every single book is its own little facet of the genre. So one thing people talk about a lot is Neuromancer being the origin of cyberpunk, the, the whole concept of cyberpunk. Okay. And that's okay. That's correct. But Neuromancer is a tough read. I can't really recommend that to most people. It's a, it created the entire genre that gave us Blade Runner and the new 2049 cyberpunk game and all of that concept. It gave us all of that. But unlike most things that originate an idea, it's almost not worth going back to because of how dense it is. It's not as good. And then you have things like Dune, which may have not created the space opera, but perfected it by far. Um, I think Star Wars technically came before Dune. I'm not actually sure. I'm on it. Keep talking. I'll let you know. I think Star Wars, the movie came out before um, Dune, but Dune change the way we do science fiction because science fiction was spaceships and lowbrow and um uh even if they had space wizards and big sweeping stories you didn't have the majesty and the like infinite complexity that you get in science fiction stories nowadays until doom um 
Dune came out in 1965. A New Hope came out in 77. Okay, so Dune maybe did Dune start the space opera right. genre. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I have one that I don't really know what I would consider this to do, but you can't make a list about seminal paradigm-shifting works without mentioning Isaac Asimov. So I have to talk about iRobot and the fact that every single person who has a robot in their story has them default to the three laws of robotics that he came up with in this book. Like, this is a person who came up with three laws for a single story in his universe and they have become so fundamental to our understanding of artificial intelligence and robotics in general that actual science is done based on them now. So iRobot has to be somewhere on this list, and Asimov as well. Uh, yeah, if you hadn't mentioned Asimov, I would have for you, just because he, like you said, he, he basically invented the philosophy of sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one person I would add in the terms of space opera, maybe a little bit before that, is like the really, really old, and I don't know if you want to include comic strips, but Flash Gordon. Yeah. Also, also no, that was something I thought about is, should we do comics at all? Because yeah. everything that exists in literature also exists in comic books, and we've recommended mm-hmm. a few comic books on here, um, but we don't normally make a distinction between them and other, or I try not to make a distinction between them and other types of literature, but yeah. No, I don't Flash think you Gordon. should. It's still literature, it just has pictures, yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that, because um, manga has become huge among like um, young adults nowadays. Yeah. But Flash Gordon did create the, I mean, it set the basis for superheroes and science fiction at the same time. Yeah. Which is crazy that it did both somehow. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I also, so um, Jules Verne, I think, is is obviously the OG of Mm -hmm. sci-fi. Like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or Bust. Um, Yeah. And I wouldn't, I don't even know if I would consider that like sci-fi necessarily. I would just consider that straight up futurism almost. And that's, Uh, that's one of the fun things about science fiction is, um, we consider Jules Verne science or cause science fiction, you give it enough time. It becomes science fact, um, Mm -hmm. for the most part. And Verne is the key example of that. So many things he talked about him and Ray Bradbury, so many things they kind of talked about or made up exist now because they talked about him and made him up. Gene Roddenberry as well, with literally all of Star Trek other than spaceflight coming 100% true. The reason we have cell phones is because Gene Roddenberry was cheap and wanted to be able to have them talk with the spaceship. Like, that's hilarious. Uh, Yeah, so I disagree. I think the reason we have those things is because Gene Roddenberry, Jules Verne, et al. are time travelers. That might be it, too. Jules Verne invented the idea of a submarine a decent amount of time before the first submarines were invented. Yeah. And he was we pretty spot on to the shape time. and the way they worked. Uh, he's an alien space traveler. Yeah. Who was it that invented the internet? Like, wasn't it um, uh, somebody way back the when? U.S. military. No, somebody way back when like discussed the concept oh, of an internet. Al Gore. Al Gore. Okay. No, in fiction, somebody right. from like forever before we basically had electricity talked about how the internet would work um, in a story they wrote. Sounds about right. And it was just like, that's insane because science fiction becomes science fact. You get enough time. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah. I, okay. so my final one I'm going to throw out for sci-fi uh, and you can disagree with me only because you know way more than I do. <laughs> um, in terms of like 
researched sci-fi or um, scientifically plausible sci-fi. Okay. I don't even know what I'm trying to say. I would almost put Michael Crichton on the list. No, yeah. I, I think there's probably people who did it before Crichton, but Crichton is a very good person to put on the list. He is... The fact the fact that he's not even a scientist and so many of his books are based in real uh, concepts of futurism or real scientific uh, understanding, he did so much work to make his books plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a – I don't know if that's a really a genre split. It should be. There should be a way you can just look up plausible sci-fi versus magical sci-fi. Right. Um, and because that's even the- different than hard and soft science. Like that's yeah. – it's very different things. So, well, because the other day when we were talking about the three body problem, originally I was like so over the moon about it. I was like, "Oh, this guy, he basically invented a new genre of sci-fi. It's scientifically plausible." But the more I thought about it, the more I was like, ah, "Well, you know what? Michael Crichton was doing that back in the '90s, '80s. Like he was he was researching stuff, and his stuff wasn't as technical necessarily, mm-hmm. but it was still." Um, he was taking ideas of genetics in Jurassic Park. He was taking ideas of uh, physics in in uh, airframe and airframe uh, ideas of physics in timeline as well. Yeah, that's actually how I learned about quantum physics. Oh yeah, that's timeline. still how I understand quantum. physics. Yeah, me too, hundred <laughs> percent. Like I have to think um, of it in terms that they described in timeline. Yeah, um, yeah. Like without reading timeline, I don't think I would have been able to fully grasp some of the things that were happening in the third um, in deaths and. <laughs> yes I agree with that. I like agree it was that. like a primer for that mm-hmm. so just interesting it's kind of fun to think about who influenced what i'm liking this yeah all right well i have two more books on my list but i didn't find a place to um insert them yet so i'm just gonna say that uh i am a big fan of true crime at least when it comes to true crime like television and podcast and stuff i haven't read that many true crime books but i have several on my shelf right now um but without in cold blood by truman capote we would not have the concept of true crime um oh shit that's a good book yeah we had before him we had long form journalism about crime um and criminals uh but he was writing around the same time that we even invented the concept of serial killers um and he did the first time where he interviewed the killers and wrote their story as well as the victim's story. And he gave it a whole narrative instead of just writing exactly what happened and then the court cases and stuff. Mm-hmm. So he made true crime exist, yeah. which is pretty impressive. Oh, man. That reminds me just of like the first time I read that book because it was in high school. Uh, it was required reading one year, uh, mm-hmm. probably partly because – that whole story occurred in Kansas where I'm from and I picked it up and I was like, Oh God, I've got two books to read this summer. This sucks. And then I picked that one up and I finished it in like three days. That was such a, it was so compelling. Um, Yeah, it was, it was very compelling. And it was really, like you said, it was interesting to read a, a true story that was dramatized in a way that made you just kind of shake your head at the fact that humans could do this type of stuff to each other. Yeah. And he embodies the, the concept of you can't really, um, I have you, if you've seen the movies that have been made about him and the book, um, it, it, and I've read a documentary about, uh, or not a documentary, but a, um, can't read a documentary. Um, I've read an autobiography about him where it talks about how, uh, 
he embodies the idea of you can't really tell a story about a real person until you completely understand them. And it's because he fell in love with one of the murderers after doing interviews with them. Um, and it broke him. He barely wrote anything afterwards. Uh, and this is the guy who wrote breakfast at Tiffany's and everything else beforehand. Um, so like he poured so much of himself into this book that made up the entire, or started the whole true crime craze, which is impressive. I don't think I have anything to add to this. I think you pegged it. Okay. I think Truman Capote is the OG. Okay. And then this last one is kind of funny, but I, I, when I started this list, I felt like I needed something else. And um, this was the first thing that popped up into my head. Uh, spy novels or espionage in general. Um, okay. The way we think of, the way we think of how spies work, it's not at all, at all how actual spies work, but was given to us by um, Dr. No and James Bond and Ian Fleming's Dr. No. Yeah. Uh, when he started the concept of the super spy and the British suave alcoholic, like that whole, everything about that exists because of that book, which is really funny to me. Have you ever read any of those, um, like people who used to be in the CIA got out and decided to write a book about their experience? I have. Yes. But not, but not like the, um, not like the actual agents. Um, I've read like a, a version, uh, I read the ghost on the wires book that was about a guy who works for the NSA and right. does spy through that. And I've read one about people who were living in, um, in Berlin, uh, while the wall was still up and talked about how espionage impacted their lives. Not about, not from the actual agents. No, no, it's, it's totally okay. I just, um, I was asking because I read the master disguise, my secret life in the CIA by, um, Tony Mendez, the guy that Argo was based off of. Mm-hmm. And, in that book, he was talking about someone he worked with and that guy basically, he was a spy and he based his entire persona off of Ian Fleming's James Bond. Oh God. The entire thing. Because so he, he was, was a terrible like, was spy? <laughs> yeah, basically. Basically. Um, and so it's just, it's funny to think about. But in terms of Ian Fleming inventing the genre, I think that makes sense. You couldn't really invent the type of spy that we think of before the cold war. Um, yeah. Because that, that whole cultural dynamic just is what forms the whole idea of someone who needs to sneak into these areas that are accessible, but not really. And you need to have a command of all these different languages and you're not really in the military. So you're not stealing military secrets. You're stealing state secrets and you're trying to prevent something that affects the entire world. Um, and it, it all rises out of the cold war era and so you get not only, you know, the James Bond franchise, but then you also get all of these other spinoffs. You get the um, Tinker Tailor Told Soldier Spy. You mm-hmm. get the, um, the Bourne series. And I, I think you're right. I think most of those are just Ian Fleming knockoffs. Yeah. And it's funny because everybody tries to gravitate either more towards the ridiculous nature of his gadgets and um disguises and those end up sometimes just being comedies or sometimes being really interesting action things like Kingsman um, Mm -hmm. or salt. Uh, But then you can also go the other way and get grittier and become things like the good shepherd or more realistic, I guess you would say, and become the good shepherd. Or you said Tinker Taylor soldier spy and the born series, like Mm -hmm. both side, all that comes from Fleming, like all that existed in James Bond books. 
uh, you could just take it either way, and that's how we have the spy genre now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Those, that, we covered all my list, and I didn't have to add anything at the end. That was fun. <laughs> you were welcome. That yeah. was pretty fun. Did you have any other books you thought were paradigm shifters that we didn't mention yet? You know, I was able to work in, I think, all of them just through the the natural flow of the conversation, which was kind of nice. Um, yeah. I feel like there was one that I didn't get to um, mention. I don't remember what it was. It, I think it had something to do with historical fiction. Um, okay. I don't remember, though, so it doesn't matter. I, I enjoy Historical fiction is something we should maybe talk about. I just saw a list of uh, – every time I see you know a side story, like list of – top 10 something books. I always look at it and see how many of them I've read. And, um, I saw Shogun that you've recommended pop up again on one. And I was like, I really need to move that up on my list as one of the best works of historical fiction, um, ever. So I was like, I need to pop that up on my list higher. Um, Yeah. Yeah. James Clavell is, is pretty good at it. The more you read historical fiction, the more often his name tends to pop up. I gotcha. About, about comedy. We haven't talked about anything comedic. I would say Terry Adams. Pratchett or yeah. I would say a Confederacy of Dunces may I've have. Read that. No. I ha- I've started it several times and it's now I just glanced over my shelf and saw it sitting there. Um, it, it the the whole um, farcical irreverent book. Uh, I think that's one of the ones that started it. But again, I have never finished it, so I don't know. Fair it's enough. a Pulitzer Prize winner from way back. Who came first? Was Douglas Adams or Terry Pratchett writing um, first? I don't know. Confederacy of Dunces was written sometime in the 1960s, it looks like. Okay. Um, so that's real old. I mean, not you know, real old. But it says it wasn't published until 1978. But okay. the guy who wrote it died in 1969. So. Oh, that's weird. Okay. Yeah. He doesn't count. He gets written off. Uh, <laughs> Terry, <laughs> sorry, bud. Uh, Terry Pratchett's first novel, The Carpet People, was published in 1971. So that would be before that one. Okay. Uh, well, Terry Pratchett lived longer than Douglas Adams. So. I mean, he wrote so much stuff. Right. It's like, if you're talking by volume alone, he wins. Oh, yeah. Because um, Adams was a notorious. Um, Notorious uh, procrastinator. Uh, the final book of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was due well before he died. And when they, um, after he died, when they opened up his files and found the file that was supposed to be the last book, it was completely empty. <laughs> he had not written a word of it. Right. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy came out in 1978. I'm sorry. I forgot the date of the other one already. <laughs> 1971. Okay. So Pratchett wins both on earlier and longer. <laughs> there you go, bud. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I would probably put Pratchett up at the top anyways. Yeah. His stuff. I, there aren't a lot of things that make me laugh out loud, but both of those guys have made me laugh out loud reading their stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's impressive. All right. Well, hey, um, We've been at this for about an hour. Do you want to record some kind of intro right now that we can stick back to the beginning? Because we have no intro to this. We just yeah, babbled for a while. Right. <laughs> this is the book report.
No. Uh, I think we can just riff one, but just kind of introduce the concept of the podcast and we'll stick it before our discussion of Redwall at the beginning. Well, thanks for sticking it out, everyone, uh, and being a faithful or first-time listener. You can find us on Twitter at book underscore pod, Facebook at book report podcast, and Instagram at the book report pod with underscores in between every word. If we keep it updated, which I don't think either of us have kept our social media up in a while because social media is horrible um but you can email us at bookreportpod at gmail.com if you want to talk directly to us because we don't have anything better going on we're honestly. lonely this i mean lonely. Not, i'm not lonely I'm <laughs> uh yeah do you want to i know last week we talked a little bit about if we wanted to give ourselves some longer uh format um uh writing prompts that we didn't have to have done next week but we could you know, whenever we're done, say, hey, I finished that. Let's do a writing prompt episode. Do you want to give each other writing prompts or do it off air or something? Or No, you can, do you have one queued up? Um, I have like an idea I haven't said out loud yet, so I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase it. But yeah, I have something. Okay. Um, do you? I was going to wait for you to go so I could think. Okay. Gotcha. Okay, I want to read a story, and I will sometimes I will find a way to synthesize this into a quick prompt. But this is how I'm thinking of it. I want to read a story that has, uh, like the Harry Potter books or somebody else that has two people that could be the chosen one, or or two people that both fulfill a prophecy. And instead of it, um, instead of it being who's the real one, it's they have to like compete against each other like they're direct opponents in this to be the good guy um i'm trying to think of a better way to say that but that's the idea okay okay i'll be interested to see how you condense that down but that's i know um, it's just the seedlings of an idea yet but i'll figure it out <laughs> okay. hi sorry this is jarring um but this is joel recording after the fact when he finally you know got around to writing down his writing prompt so that it could be understood <laughs> so here it goes. This is Stephen's writing prompt. The Dark One rose. The scholars and prophets scoured the countryside to find the foretold Chosen One. It's now the last battle. The forces of good and evil are fighting what could be Armageddon, but everyone knows that no matter what heroics take place on the battlefield, the outcome will be determined by the true fight between the Chosen Hero and the Great Evil. But two Chosen Ones have shown up? They both fulfill every minute detail of the prophecies, but all the foresights agree that the final battle is to be one-on-one. -on -one. The dark one is here. How do you decide who to send out and fight? Um, I would like you to write me a thriller okay. about the inhabitants of the Munson Scott South Pole Station in Antarctica. Okay. I you will do that. Do you want me to be a little more specific? Uh, is this the one where everybody went missing? No. No, okay. this is the current operating research. Oh, it's the currently working one. Okay. Uh-huh. This isn't that like 1920s or whatever expedition that everyone just kind of vanished. No, no, not that. No. Okay. Do you want me to be more specific? If you ha can be more specific, go ahead. Okay. I would like you to write a thriller set at that South Pole research station, but it cannot be supernatural in okay. any way, shape, or form. All right. That sounds fun. Okay. Um, 
I might uh, go back I would in recommend and recommend riding it while it's 15 degrees outside in Oklahoma. I mean, it was only years. helpful. Right. Okay. Um, I'm going to, I'll probably re-record just a quick section that says my idea for you because That's I know cool. that was worded badly, but then I'll put them both in the text description. Okay. That'll be fun. We don't know what we're talking about next week or when these things will be done, but stay tuned. Bye. Bye. Sure. Um, you take it away because you're quicker on your feet than I am. I'll play off of you. Fuck that Jenny Craig, put some seconds on your plate. Fuck, wait, watch us put some seconds on your plate. Fuck that slim fast, put some seconds on your plate. Good. There you go. Is that what you were looking for? I was wrong. There's no way I can play off that because I have no <laughs> idea what just happened. There's a song I was listening to yesterday while I was working out and that was it was in the playlist somehow <laughs> that was amazing and i'm so glad that that is recorded but that's not <laughs> what i meant okay fine well we'll just start from the top then I, like my mother um <sighs> riffing 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 what did we even talk about today books okay so talked about some books um let's see let's see